You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from our youth pastor, Josh Rogers. Good morning. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to those streaming wherever you may be. Welcome everyone here. Um, We this summer are doing a series called Good News. I just realized I'm pacing a lot, which for Joe back there running the stream probably is really bad, isn't it? Yeah, he's he's, he's telling me. Um, I'll try to stay kind of right here in the pocket. Uh, But we're doing a series called uh, Good News. Good News. Um, We're focusing on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and um, Lee started us last week kind of focusing on the central figure of the gospel, which of course is Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And there's so many facets of the gospel, and we have so many incredible uh, preachers uh, this summer who are going to um, focus on these different um, parts of the gospel and what it means for us and how we interact with it. And today what I want to talk about is how we approach the gospel, Uh, the posture at which we take when we come to Jesus, when we come to the good news, whether it be for the first time or whether it be every morning you wake up after, there's a certain kind of posture that God wants of us when we approach him and this incredible news that he has for us. And that's what I want us to look at. I want to start by talking about two types of people. And every single one of us falls into one of these categories. You might always fall into one or the other, or you may sometimes, depending on the context, fall into one or the other. Our first type of person is the person who, if they're struggling in a school subject, they stay after school and they work with the professor or teacher to get better at it, to learn it, um, to help explain the things they're struggling with. Or when they're driving down the road or they're walking somewhere and they get lost, they pull over, they open up a map app and check for directions, or they ask for some help so that they can figure out where they're going. Or when they walk into a dark room at night, they turn the light on so they can see where they're going and make sure they don't bump into something and find what they're looking for. You can see where I'm going. There's a type two. Okay, and I confess, I oftentimes fall into the category of type two. My wife is nodding her head. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, when, you're, when you need help in school, instead of wasting your time staying after school, when you could be spending that time with friends, you'd rather just bang your head against the book and hope it just kind of goes in, or, or you tell yourself, no, I'm smart enough, I can get this, I'm just going to figure it out. All right. Or when you need directions, you say, I know I'm just around the corner. I'm pretty sure I'm close. I don't need to stop and waste time and pull open Google Maps or something like that. And then finally, this is the one I've been doing since a kid. I don't know why it is. At nighttime, in a dark room, I say, I want a sense of danger. I want some adventure in my life. I'm not flipping that switch on. I'm going in. I have, I have in my mind a memory of where everything is. I can find my way. I don't need the light. Um, of course, a lot of times what happens is you stub your toe on a couch, you hit your shin on a table, very painful. And I don't know if it's just me. Um, when I hit, hurt myself in the dark unexpectedly, it hurts like twice as much as if I had seen myself do it. There's some kind of mental thing going on there. So there's a possibility of pain. But let's say you hit yourself. Let's say you actually bob and weave and you made it through the maze of items in the dark room 
and you somehow get to the area that you were aiming for. Now you've got to find the object you're looking for. I don't know if it's your cell phone, your keys, your wallet, a book. Maybe it's the remote control, right? You're like, I don't have to get off the couch and go turn the light back off now that I'm watching. Anyways, you're looking for it, and you start feeling around, and you're trying to find it, and you're not finding it right away, but you keep telling yourself. You can almost imagine it in your mind. You're like, I know it's like close to my hand. I'm just missing it because it's pitch black right now, and I'm just, I just keep missing it, but I know it's right here, and I don't want to waste my time and get up, go turn the light on just to find it. Of course, if you did turn the light on, you'd probably realize it wasn't even in the room, and it's like in another room, and it was a waste of time in the first place. But we just, we, for some reason built into us, we just don't want to swallow our pride. We don't want to step into situations from a humble perspective. And yet, I mean, we all know if we really thought about it from life experience and watching others make dumb mistakes, we know if we approach situations from a humble perspective, might take longer, might even be at times a little tougher, but you're going to have more success. You're not going to hurt yourself, frustrate yourself, humiliate yourself, do all these dumb things. You'll actually find more success in doing it. And so we're going to talk about this idea of humility today. We're going to talk about this posture of approaching situations, approaching things, but most importantly, approaching Jesus Christ and the good news of the Son of God from a posture of humility. Now, when you think of a posture of humility, I'm sure uh, if you were to think of somebody, for a lot of people, the first person you thought of was Jesus Christ, right? He's he's, He's the living embodiment of humility. He is the perfect model of humility. But I always think it's funny that we kind of treat Jesus as like the only model of humility. When we look at the Bible, it's as if God just woke up one day and went, oh, I think I'll take on a new character trait and express it through my son, as if God never had the quality of humility. But God always had this character trait. Sure, it's most visible maybe in uh, the life of Jesus Christ, but God has always valued humility, has, uh, has lived out humility, has, has contained it in who he is. And I, so I want to look at that really quickly. If you go all the way back to Genesis, you go all the way to the beginning of Scripture, think about this. The creator of the entire universe, the author of life and existence, uh, a being beyond our imaginations, outside of place and time, decided to create the universe. And so he creates the stars and the moons, right? He creates the planets, the mountains and the trees, the elephants and the little kittens, right? He created it all. And then he created us, a part of creation. And it was all good. It was all wonderful. But out of all of creation, he looked at us and he put his image on us. He took something that makes God special, something that's incredibly unique about God that separates him from all of his creation, and he humbled himself and gave it to us. This incredible gift, a gift that we oftentimes, right, spit on and throw away and we don't care about, and yet he put this incredible gift of his image on us. That's humility. That's a beautiful, powerful act of humility. Move forward in Genesis just a little bit, and we see God of the universe outside of place and time step into his garden, and it says he intimately would walk with Adam and Eve that he would walk with them and talk with them. He would listen to their thoughts and what they had to say. That's incredible humility 
for the God of the universe to do such a thing. You continue on. You look at his relationship with the nation of Israel, a nation he created out of nothing, a nation that he cared for, he blessed, he rescued from the clutches of Egypt, um, and, 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 just, and he protected and cared for, right? He did all of this incredible stuff. And in return, they turned their backs on him. They worship other gods. They imitated other um, nations. Um, they spurred him, much like uh, a spouse running around and cheating on their significant other, right? They completely rejected him, and yet he kept showing them grace and mercy, grace and mercy. The prophets paint a picture that this is, Israel is trying to humiliate God to the surrounding nations, that they're, that they're being, um, that they're embarrassing him by treating him this way. And even though they do that, he's still continues to be faithful. He might discipline them, but he sticks it through with them. He tries to keep helping them. That is incredible humility. God has always contained a beautiful and powerful level of humility inside of who he is. It is a part of him. And of course, the most incredible way it was manifested was through Jesus Christ the center of the gospel, the center of the good news, the character um, that makes it all happen, who came here, embodied broken, fallen, painful human flesh. He walked with us. He loved us. He served us on his hands and knees. He died for us. He took on our sins. He didn't deserve it. He lived a perfect life. He took every little bit of it on And even after his death, he rose from the dead. And we're often told, one, it's for his glory, but to pave a way for us, people who don't deserve it, completely don't deserve it. All of that is just an incredible act of humility. And so humility is something that God values so highly. He cares about it so deeply. We see this in 2 Chronicles 7.14. It says, My people who are called by my name humble themselves. They pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. From the very beginning, all the way through the Old Testament, it it didn't just start with Jesus. God has always valued humility, and he's wanted to call his people to it. He wanted to see that idea of humility, that that expression of humility that lives in his character and in his image. He wanted to see that coming out in the image that he he placed on us. And so this idea of humility is one in which we must take, not just as an attitude, but as a posture. It's one that we're told that we don't just, that's not just important, that's not just a good idea, but that it's crucial that it's absolutely um, crucial and needed and expected when it comes to our approach to God, when it comes to our approach to uh, the gospel and to the good news. If God himself can humble himself to meet us, I mean, it's absurd that we wouldn't humble ourselves to meet him. And so this is what I want to talk about, this posture of humility. And I, I very much want to use that word, because when I think of a posture, I think it's like head to toe. It's, it's like a full body thing. It's a, it's a complete uh, way of life that encompasses everything. And we're going to look in uh, the book of Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, if you have a Bible and want to turn there. And I want to look at Mark because, one, 
According to many biblical scholars, the Gospel of Mark was the first written and canonized gospel. All right? It's believed that many of the other gospels took stories, and I mean, if you look at the Greek, sometimes it's almost word for word the exact same thing, that they took it from Mark, that they used Mark as a lot of the foundations, um, and that they just kind of built on top of Mark, really. And so Mark is our first gospel, and we're going to look at the first chapter and the first verses to see what the beginning of the gospel looks like. What, what does it tell us when it talks about what it looks like to approach Jesus, to approach his good news, um, what, it's, what it's calling us to? Because something really interesting in the book of Mark and in a lot of the other gospels, the story doesn't start with Jesus. It doesn't begin with Jesus being kind of the central figure. Instead, it starts with his cousin, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a prophet who had a very specific mission. John the Baptist cared very much for Jesus, the Son of God. He cared very much for the gospel. But he had a specific goal and mission, which was to prepare people for Jesus Christ. Right? He's the one who's going to set the road for the car that comes down. He's the one who's paving the way, preparing the way. And so we're going to look at what he tells people to do when it comes to entering into this posture to prepare themselves for Jesus and for the good news. So let's look very carefully at kind of what he prescribes to the people. Still relevant to us today. I'm going to start on verse 1. It says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So these are our first steps that John the Baptist is prescribing to people of his time, but it really doesn't change even for us. There's nothing different. We all approach and interact and experience Jesus at different points in our lives, um, and it's something that we continue to uh, interact with. And so these are the first steps to kind of exercising uh, our bodies into this posture of humility. It's kind of like you're, you're stretching and you're getting your body prepared for Jesus. It kind of reminds me of back when I played sports in middle school and high school, uh, especially with football. I remember we do this. The first week or two, you don't throw the football around. You don't even put on pads and start tackling. You just do conditioning. You prepare your body for the activity you're going to do. You prepare your body for the sport that you're going to play. And so the focus is on all on conditioning and getting yourself prepared. That's what John the Baptist's focus here is, getting us prepared for a posture of humility in order to. And he prescribes a few tools here. The first one he mentions is repentance. We're not going to spend a lot of time on repentance, but it's this idea of turning away from the temptations and sins that you've been pursuing and turning towards God and turning towards his righteousness. Can we earn our way or fight our way to God or fight our way to righteousness? No. But the idea is just 
purely, I've made a decision, I'm rejecting this, and I want this. Thankfully, Jesus paves a way for us to make it there. That's repentance. But the thing we're going to focus on today is confession. I think Lisa said the word confession like 10 times, so I was like, ooh, I wonder if anyone (laughs) notices. But we're going to talk about confession today, confession of sins. This is something that John the Baptist really prescribes here, and it's a tool, you know, think of it as like exercise equipment, preparing ourselves to get into this posture of humility so that we can have an appropriate and healthy interaction with Jesus and with the good news that he brings. Um, Now, I know confession sounds like a scary word. Um, For a lot of Protestant Christians, confession has a certain connotation. We think uh, of maybe the Protestant Reformation, of them rejecting this idea that you have to go to a church, you have to talk to a priest, Back then, there might have been, you had to pay a penance or literally pay money in order for him to forgive your sins once you've confessed them, um, and that you've got to kind of jump through all of these hoops, right? The Protestant Reformation, we were like, that's not biblical. The only mediator we need between us and forgiveness of God is Jesus Christ. Um, Praise Jesus. Uh, So that's not what we're talking about. If that's kind of in the back of your mind when you're thinking about confession, get it out of your mind right now. We're going to look at the biblical idea of confession and see that it's, it can be tough, it can be hard, but it's not scary. And in fact, it's something to be excited about because what it brings is freedom from guilt. All right? So we're going to, that's, that's where I want our minds at. That's where I want us to be thinking as we kind of look through what the biblical idea of confession is. And the first thing we're going to look at is that confession is exposing sin to light. Remember the thing I talked about going into the room in the dark and there's all this furniture that could trip you up or hurt you. The item you need is lost. And we just need to lose our pride, be humble, and just turn the switch on. Unless you're just looking for a little bit of fun and adventure like me. Um, (laughs) But we just need to humble ourselves and turn the light on. We're going to see that the Bible loves to play with these dichotomies of light and darkness as a metaphor to explain things. And Paul, in particular, likes to use it when he's referring to sin and kind of how we approach and deal with sin. And so let's look at what he says in Ephesians 5, 11 through 14. Paul says this, starting in 11, "...have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them." It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. So you see here, Paul is using this idea that you have to expose sin by shining a light on it. This is what it looks like to confess, is to shine a light on the darkness in our lives. Uh, I kind of think of it as a messy room. Um, If if you've ever had guests coming over and you've got a messy room, maybe it's your spare bedroom, maybe it's a a children's bedroom, maybe it's a roommate's room, and you've got some people coming over and you're just kind of embarrassed of it, what do you do? You shut the door. Yeah. Yeah. Abby knew, you shut the door. 
okay? <laughs> you hide it. You just ignore it and you hide it. We have guests coming over in 30 minutes. We don't have time to deal with this, so we're just going to shut the door. It doesn't get rid of the mess. The mess doesn't go anywhere. It's still there, okay? He says here, um, the fruitless deeds of darkness, right? It's fruitless. There's, there's no progress that's taking place there. There's nothing going to happen that's going to make this situation better. You're just hiding it. But let's say you know you have a day, at least a day heads up. Someone's going to come and stay with you. Maybe your kids have friends that are going to come over and they're going to um, spend the night, right, and stay in their room. Maybe you have an adult coming over who's going to um, stay in the guest bedroom. You know that that door has to be open. Everything in that room is going to get exposed. And because it's going to get exposed, it means that you have to deal with it. You've got to deal with it. You've got to clean it up. Even if it's just pushing some of the clutter out of the way and taking that plate of whatever is making that smell out from under the bed or wherever it's hiding or you're just going to spray some Febreze, even, even if that's what you're going to do, you've got to do a little bit of something because people are going to come in. They're going to see it, right? And so it's got to be dealt with. That's what he's saying here. If you shine a light on the sin in your life, you're, you're opening the door for God and for you to actually wrestle with this sin and actually deal with it. You keep the door shut, guess what? Nothing's ever going to get better. In fact, when it comes to sin, I can promise you it's going to multiply. It's going to spread to other parts of your life. It's going to fester. It's going to get even more rotten. It's going to get worse. It's not going to get better when you ignore it. And so open the door. Shine a light on it. That's what Paul's telling us here if you want to start dealing with it. In Proverbs 28, 13, we see even in the Old Testament, it says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. The only way to deal with it is to expose it to the light. The only way to start dealing with it is to expose it from the light. Uh, it reminds me of the story from the Bible that Jesus tells. He's talking about these two guys who go to the temple to pray. Okay, there's the first guy who goes to the temple, and he's, he's a good guy. Probably pays his taxes, gives tithes. Um, he goes to church on a regular basis, probably wakes up and reads his Bible most days. He's a good guy. And he goes into the temple. He's pretty, pretty confident, feeling good. Nobody's judging him. He feels really good about life. He looks up to God, arms wide, and he prays, thank you, God, that I'm not like all these other sinners in the room. Thank you that I've lived a pretty dang good life, and I'm a good guy, and you've blessed me in so many ways, and, uh, and I worked really hard, and I really deserve it. Thank you, Lord. Then there's the second guy who walks in. He's kind of dragging his feet. He doesn't want to be there necessarily, but he knows he has to. He's got his head down. He gets into the temple. He lays on his knees. He's got tears in his eyes, and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He confesses and brings to light what he has done, the ways he's wronged people, the ways he's been selfish, the ways he's hurt others, the way he has damaged and separated himself from God. He confesses it. He brings it to God. Jesus asks, which guy walked out of the temple righteous? Was it the good guy? The guy who, you know, he doesn't do much wrong. He's pretty good. He's great. He's a little, little confident, maybe a, a little self-righteous, a little judgmental. Um, but he, he's a really good guy, right? No, Jesus says it's the guy who's the sinner, the guy who actually exposed the sin, even though he's done all these terrible and rotten things. 
It's the one who actually brought it to God. The one who actually exposed it is the one who ended up walking out righteous, not the other guy. When we expose things to the light, God and you can actually deal with it. But this is what the good news is. It says he walked out righteous because he brought it to God. That's what makes the news about Jesus so good, so great, so awesome, is that we don't just go to Jesus saying, oh, here's what I've done. I hope you don't hate me. I hope you don't strike me down. I hope you don't you know, do something awful to me. No. Instead, what makes the news about Jesus Christ so good is that he always forgives. He always shows compassion. He always heals you and restores you. In 1 John 1, 1 John chapter 1, 8 through 9, it says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's like the first guy, the self-righteous guy who went into the temple, right? We're all sinners. Even he has some sin, even if it's just in his heart. Just the fact that he judged everyone in that temple right then and there was a sin, right? But he's either blind to his sin or he's lying about his sin. And so if we claim to be without sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's why the news about Jesus Christ is so good because he is faithful. He always does it. When we come to him in a posture of humility, he is always faithful to forgive us. Would you go to a doctor if you didn't feel sick or you didn't think you needed like a checkup, make sure you're doing all right? You wouldn't. Why would you waste the time? Would you go to a doctor if you thought he was a a con artist and that he didn't know anything about medicine and was really bad at his job? No, you wouldn't. Would you go to a mechanic if you thought the mechanic, um, or if you didn't think there was anything wrong with your car, if you thought your car was fine, you didn't think you needed to check it up, you know, top the oil, get a checkup, do whatever. If you thought everything was great with your car, you wouldn't take it to a mechanic. Why would you waste your time and your money? And you also definitely wouldn't go to a mechanic if you like looked online and all these reviews were like, one star, he's terrible, he'll steal your money and mess up your car, right? You wouldn't take your car to that mechanic. You wouldn't go to a doctor or mechanic if you didn't think you needed to, and you wouldn't go if you thought they were going to do a terrible job. But we do need God. We are sinners. We are broken. We do need him. And he is faithful, and he is good, and he will show compassion. This is what makes good news so good. And it's really important to remember that John here that part we just read in 1 John chapter 1. He's not talking to non-believers. He's not trying to convince non-believers that they should take that first step of faith, that they should confess those sins for the very first time and trust in Jesus. He's talking to the church. He's writing to various churches, and he's talking to Christians, people who have already confessed their sins once, and have already tried to enter into this relationship with Jesus and interact with his good news. So why is he telling them this? Because it's not a one-and-done thing. When we talk about confession, this isn't just for somebody for the very first time interacting with Jesus. John is trying to show them, oh no, this is a way of life, my friends. This is a posture that you take on for the rest of your life. 
This is not a a first step thing. Like with John, he kind of says, hey, here's your first steps. No, it's an expected thing that continues on throughout the rest of your life and your faith and your relationship with Jesus Christ. This posture of humility, this continuing to bring your sins to him so that he can help you grow and deal with it, to show you forgiveness, to bring about healing. And so, confession of sin, we want to expose it to the light. But when we do, he is faithful to forgive. Now, it's a lifelong thing. And for many of us, there are days and there are times, there are big seasons, where we just don't feel like we're getting that same intimate connection to God. We want to share with him. We want to talk to him. We want to feel that love, that compassion, and that forgiveness. And sometimes it's hard. God knows this. God understands our limitations and who we are, right? When he created Adam, he could have said, what do you mean you're lonely? I'm here. Look at me. I'm God, (laughs) right? He didn't. He created Eve, okay? In the same way, when Christ left us, he said, I'm not leaving you alone, because I'm giving you the body of Christ. Through fellow believers, through other Christians, we can experience forgiveness, we can experience the healing process of confession, and we can affirm it. We can affirm the love of God and forgiveness over others. And I'm not talking about a priest, I'm just talking about people who you trust, who have your best interest at heart, who love the Lord, who you can share with, and experience that. We see James um, prescribe this when it comes to working out this posture of humility throughout our lives. And, and when it comes to bringing our sins to the Lord, he says in chapter 5, verse 16, therefore confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. God wants us to experience his love and his forgiveness through our relationships with one another, with fellow believers. He wants us to affirm that and speak that over each other, to remind each other that, no, don't listen to the lies in your head. He loves you still. He forgives you. You have brought this to him, and that's what he wants you to do. He didn't want you to hide it. He wants you to bring it to him. But it's so important that the church and that Christians be a safe place for fellow Christians to confess, or otherwise they're just always going to hide it. If it's going to be a place of judgment and attack and and oppression, and you're going to dogpile people, then they're always going to be scared to share it. And if they're always scared to share it, then the door's shut, it's going to fester, it's going to get more rotten. And look here, when James says, and James is a tough cookie, right? Go read through the book of James. I mean, he's got like, hey guys, we got to get our lives in order, okay? So he's a tough guy. What does he say when we confess our sins? He says, then pray for each other so that they may be healed. He doesn't say, good, rebuke them. The Bible talks about rebuking, but that's usually people who aren't waking up to their sin they're dealing with. No, when he says, if somebody works up the courage or, or is willing to really humble themselves and, and just expose their weakness and their shame and their guilt, if they're willing to bring that to you, pray for them and lift them up. Encourage them and love them. If somebody comes to me and has shared 
this is a thing I'm struggling with. This is what's going on in my life, and I can't shake it, and I'm dealing with it. I always tell myself, first thing they better hear is, I love you, God loves you, God forgives you. That needs to be the first thing. It might say it in different orders and in different ways, but that better be the first thing. Maybe later I'll say, now you know you need, to, you need to move away from this. You know you need to avoid this area of your life. Sure, sure. But the first thing they need to hear is, I love you. God loves you. Thank you for sharing because he has forgiven you. He forgave you from the, before you even said those words, you were forgiven. That's what they need to hear. I need to lift them up in prayer. The church and fellow Christians need to be a safe place for when other Christians bring this, or even non-Christians bring what they're struggling with. Because James here shows us what the real goal of confession is, right? Confession is this incredible tool to build this posture of humility, but the goal is healing. That's what he says there. Why are you praying for them? So that they are healed. Why should we confess to each other? So that you are healed. The goal of confession is healing. If ever we in our minds are thinking about confessing to earn some kind of uh, God points to get good with God or, or to make up for something as if it's like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the shame of confessing this so that I can make up for it. That's not God's goal. The goal is healing that you would be healed of that temptation and that thing that's been dogging you and that sin that's in your life, that you would move past it and move towards him and his righteousness. So confession, it's not scary. It can be tough. It can be hard. But we have to expose it to the light or God's never going to help us deal with it. It's got to get exposed. But it's good news. It's not scary because guess what? There is forgiveness in it. There's healing in it. And finally, he gave us each other to be little Christ in each other's lives, to represent the love and the forgiveness of God that we can find in him. This is confession of sin. Now, confession of sin, right? John the Baptist, right at the beginning of the gospel. These are the first steps to exercise and get ourselves in this posture of humility that we need to live on. And confession of sin... And this posture of humility is something that continues on from the first step into the beginning. But once we get past that first step and we experience that forgiveness, we get a new type of confession that we're called to, a confession of faith, a confession of faith that we would share about this incredible, good, exciting news that we've received about the forgiveness, about the, the life eternal, about the freedom and the healing that comes through the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we're called to a confession of faith also. In Romans 10, 9 through 10, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess faith and are saved. Confession of faith is one a sign of maturity, that you've really embraced it, that you've truly humbled yourself and you're laying your life on him. And just like confession of sin, it's not something you just do this one time when you got baptized, but it's literally every day of your life, you're saying, Josh, today I'm going to trust in Jesus. It's something you confess, profess to the Lord. But also, this is how others can experience the good news. 
You show them that you have fallen, that you're broken, that you needed Jesus, but you've experienced that healing in him. That's the real joy of confessing, right? The maturity and the healing and the way that it can impact others around us. And so this is so central and important to what the good news is all about. This is what is so powerful um, about what it looks like for us to interact with Jesus and interact with his gospel is this posture of humility. And we can really exercise it and really experience it and kind of develop ourselves, right, Um, in order to uh, really live it out in a really powerful way. Um, Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day, for these folks, those at home and those in the room. And we thank you so much for your word, the truth about what it means to confess, the joy. It's not scary, Lord, but the joy that we have um, and the opportunity that we have through it, that you've given us these tools and that you've given us ultimately the promise of freedom, of forgiveness, of healing um, found through really exercising out this posture of humility. Lord, we pray that you would reveal to us places in our hearts where we might not see our sin, where we might not see our selfishness, where we've rejected you, where we've hurt others. Um, Make it clear to us. Humble us, Lord. Draw us, not so that we will feel bad, not so that we'll feel guilty, Lord, but so that we can seek you. Lay these things before your throne, before the cross, and take up the forgiveness and the healing that you have promised and plan to offer. And we know it's waiting there, and we know it's there for us. And we pray, Lord, that we would really bask in it, that we would show others the freedom and the forgiveness that we've experienced only in you, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.